Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Don't Stop Believing by Yaroslav Walker Air should not work as a film. A sports biopic that barely has any actual sport in, but has plenty of shoe design. A plot that revolves around the character of Michael Jordan, considered by many to be the greatest basket player of all time, if not the greatest athlete of all time, which goes as far as to show the back of his head until the end credits, when stock footage takes over. A film that drops a number of hints about interesting character development, Matt Damon's gambling, Jason Bateman's daughter, and then never follows them up. None of this should add up to much. And yet it does. Mark Commode, very much this reviewer's lodestar of critique, has often opined that you know a biopic is doing its job when it makes you invested in a field you know nothing about. Senna makes you care about motorsport. Cinderella Man makes you care about boxing. Well, Air genuinely made me care about corporate sponsorship and shoe design. And I certainly wasn't expecting that. The direction is fine. Affleck has shown that he can be perfectly competent as an actor-director and he does a fine job. The script is fondue levels of cheesiness. Matt Damon gives a climactic speech which simply oozes baked camembert. But it's also laugh-out-loud funny on more than one occasion. The performances are all on point. Matt Damon and Viola Davis can pull off earnest roles in their sleep and Affleck and Bateman deliver some decent straight man material. Affleck also demonstrates his directorial skills with shrewd and limited use of actors who can overstay their welcome. Chris Tucker. Small doses. However, the thing that sells the film to me is the soundtrack. The film is one big nostalgia trip, and I loved it for that. I have long championed the theory that the 1980s was the best decade for popular music, and this film confirms my theory. The moment the violent femme started to play, I was sold. Cindy Lauper, Run MC, Springsteen, The Alan Parsons Project, bliss. Throw in a Smith's and a Bowie track, and I'd be giving this film an Oscar. Five stars, but only because I'm listening to the soundtrack at this very moment. Air hints at some deeper themes, although it does little more than hint. And one of these is the power of belief, the power of having faith in something. Affleck's shoe mogul, Phil Knight, has had faith in himself to build up Nike as a successful brand and now spouts lazy quasi-Buddhist aphorisms. Davis's Dolores Jordan has absolute faith in her son's sporting ability and refuses to allow it to be overlooked. Damon Sonny, a talent scout for possible sponsorship opportunities, is a gambler. He has belief in his own luck, his own scrappy attitude. He shoots craps in Vegas and demands his bosses back him because of his gut. This is what I do here and I really feel it this time. He truly believes in the value and power of sport to change his fortunes and to change the world. 
From a Christian perspective, it raises some interesting ideas, but doesn't raise them quite high enough. The Christian life is one of belief, one of faith, one of taking a chance. Yet the chance the Christian takes is not really a gamble, not a roll of the dice, but a relationship. The Christian takes a chance, but it is taking a chance on love. Whereas the characters of Air take a chance on the sporting ability of an untested Michael Jordan, the Christian finds a certain surety in the loving embrace of Jesus Christ. Having religious faith, having Christian faith, is so often mischaracterised as a blind gamble. Rather, it is a relationship with one who loves us unconditionally, and so is not as irrational as assuming one can win shooting dice, but is the truest and most sensible thing we can do. What a Monarch's Meeting Teaches About Politics and Permanence by Graham Tomlin Just about the last constitutional act of our late Queen was to give an audience to Liz Truss, the temporary, as it turned out, Prime Minister, and to ask her to form a government. The pictures of a frail but smiling monarch, weakened but still doing her job, couldn't help but evoke a mix of admiration and affection especially when we look back and consider that this was just two days before she died. But those pictures raised some questions. A prime minister and a political party that forms a government is normally chosen by the people. Queen Elizabeth was not, neither is King Charles. She was, and he now is, our monarch by virtue of birth, something that can seem scandalous to Republicans and even to many who like the Queen or admire the King as decent people, but have their doubts about the monarchy. To our democratic instincts, it feels, at least to some, distinctly odd, a relic of a hierarchical past, a hangover from a less enlightened age. But perhaps something more significant was hidden in that act. The idea of a constitutional monarch, a figure whose position is out of our hands, as it were, formally asking a politician to form a government, acts as a reminder to us that the will of the people is not the last word, or even the first word. It tells us that, important as democracy is, the worst form of government except for all the others that have been tried from time to time, as Winston Churchill famously put it, there is an order, an authority that stands above and beyond the will of the people. When it has worked well, the monarchy, a source of rule above that of people and parliament, has always been a symbol and pointer to a divine authority that can work through, but essentially stands above, all human government. Because, of course, the will of the people, and governments that claim to enact the will of the people, sometimes get things badly wrong. History even that of democracies, is littered with tales of nations that have elected bad governments or regimes that went on to enact a rule of terror in the name of the people, or where a majority has oppressed minorities. Republics of various kinds have ended up as oppressive and authoritarian. Even Hitler was elected in the first place. Of course, there are good monarchs and bad ones, 
For most of our lives, those of us who live in the UK are fortunate to have had a very good monarch in Queen Elizabeth, and we hope and pray Charles will prove to be one too. Bad monarchs, whose personal failings and moral selfishness betray the office they hold, blur the picture. They tell a different story, that authority is in itself abusive, oppressive and not to be trusted. But at its best, the continuous institution of the monarchy has served as an anchor for us, pointing away from itself to an unchanging divine presence in the course of history. The fact that a prime minister only governs at the pleasure of the monarch is a reminder of a deeper truth, that all governments are subject to a higher accountability, to a moral law they did not invent, a law that tempers justice with mercy, that our lives are subject to a deeper and more lasting reality than the shifting sands of politics or times, and that there is an even higher loyalty than that which we may have felt to our late queen or to our democratic political system. At the coronation, King Charles will be presented with an orb, a symbol of the world with a cross perched on top of it. It is a sign that ultimate power in this world belongs not to the king or even to the people, but to God. It is a reminder to the king and to us that he and we are accountable to an authority that stands beyond our own desires or even the general will of the people. It is an authority represented by a cross, the symbol of love and self-sacrifice for the good of our neighbour or even our enemy. It is one of those valuable reminders that stops any ruler from starting to think he or she can become a despot. As our constitutional system has evolved, it is the custom that monarchs don't get involved in the nitty-gritty of politics, and it's vital that they don't. That is left quite properly to the crucial hard work of democratically elected government and politicians, who have to get on with the important but messy business of governing, working out what to do about the cost-of-living crisis, how to respond to conflict in Ukraine, or how to respond to those fleeing to our shores from war-torn or poverty-stricken parts of the world. Over past decades, Queen Elizabeth kept to this custom. She avoided expressing opinions on particular political issues and disputes because that wasn't her role. Her role was to be a reminder that there is an order of things beyond the temporal, a moral structure to the world that is just given, not created by us, a structure that tells us that compassion, truthfulness, integrity, justice and honesty matter in all the calculations and compromises of political decision-making. The Queen's death removed something steady and sure from our lives, as most of us have never known another monarch. Her death shook our sense of permanence, as the Archbishop of Canterbury put it in her funeral. Many of the vox pops we heard during the period of mourning pointed to that longing for permanence, the sense she gave of something enduring and reliable. Yet she was a symbol of ultimate permanence, not the source of that permanence. As King Charles is crowned, he becomes a pointer to the unshakable and steady presence that surrounds us, upholds us and all things. The God that Christians see revealed in Jesus Christ. Queen Elizabeth understood that 
and showed it in her own faith. The one aspect of her personal life that she was quite open about. And there are signs that King Charles understands that too. Faith in that God is meant to be the foundation of a monarch's rule. It can also provide a sure foundation for our individual and less public lives too. A sense of permanence in the changes and chances of this fleeting and unstable world. Why We Make Kings by Ian Bradley At the most solemn moment of King Charles III's coronation on the 6th of May, the Westminster Abbey Choir will sing Handel's thrilling setting of words from the first chapter of the first book of Kings. Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anointed Solomon king. It provides a reminder that the anointing of the monarch with holy oil is carried out in direct imitation of a practice described in the Bible in connection with the inauguration of the kings of ancient Israel. This is not the only link which the coronation will make with stories found in the Bible. Legend has it that the stone of destiny on which Charles will be seated when he is crowned started life as the pillow on which Jacob slept when he had a dream of the ladder leading up to heaven as described in Genesis. Jacob set the stone up as a pillar to commemorate the place where God had talked to him. Later stories identify it as the pillar beside which Abimelech was crowned king of Israel and King Josiah made his covenant with the Lord to keep his commandments and statutes. The theme of monarchy looms large in the collection of books making up the Hebrew Bible, which tells of God's dealing with the chosen people of Israel and forms the Christian Old Testament. The word king occurs 565 times and kingdom 163 times. Six of the so-called historical books have the monarchy as their main subject matter, including the aptly named first and second books of kings. The life of one particular king, David, occupies more space than that of any other figure, including the great patriarchs, Abraham and Moses. Kingship is presented in the early books of the Old Testament as both the popularly requested and the divinely appointed answer to the anarchy and disorder prevailing under the judges who ruled the people of Israel for the first 250 years or so after their arrival in the promised land of Canaan around 1250 BCE. The book of Judges emphasises the corruption and lawlessness under this form of government, noting in those days, there was no king of Israel. Everyone did what was right in his eyes. The inauguration of the Israelite monarchy, which took place around 1020 BCE, is described in the book of Samuel. A crucial role is played by Samuel, the last of the great judges, who becomes the first kingmaker and presides over the coronations of both Saul and David, the first two Israelite kings. Samuel is portrayed as prophet, seer and intermediary between Yahweh, or God, and the people, to whom the elders of Israel come asking for a king to govern us all like the nations. Samuel puts this request to Yahweh 
who is initially reluctant to accede to it and tells him to spell out to the people the dangers of kingship in terms of the accretion of private wealth and military might. These warnings are ignored, however, and the people continue to insist that they must have a king to govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel reports this to God, he is told, Hearken to their voice and make them a king. If there is a certain initial unease in God's mind about the desirability of kingship, the institution is subsequently given divine blessing, but the king, being seen as God's chosen one, Messiah in Hebrew or Christos in Greek. There is a sense of partnership between Yahweh and the chosen people of Israel in the making of kings. The emphasis is on a three-way covenant between God, king and people. This concept of covenant is one of the most distinctive and central features of Israelite kingship, as is the idea that the monarch mediates and represents divine rule and stands for justice, fairness and truth. During and after the long period of exile that followed the Babylonian captivity of Israel in 597 BCE, Jews increasingly pinned their hopes on the future coming of a new Messiah, a king from the house of David, raised up by God to deliver Jerusalem from where he would reign, restoring and reuniting Israel and bringing about a new world order of justice and righteousness, as looked forward to and promised in the Psalms and the writings of the prophets. The theme of kingship, so fully explored in the Old Testament, continues to figure prominently in the New Testament, although its central focus is on the kingdom of God, inaugurated and proclaimed by Jesus, with its dethroning of the rich and powerful and exaltation of the humble and meek. All four of the Gospel writers use royal titles and monarchical allusions in their descriptions of Jesus. He is identified as the anointed king, the Messiah or Christos, leading his followers to be known as Christians. From his birth in Bethlehem in the house and family of King David and his baptism where he is identified by God as his beloved son to his trial and crucifixion for being king of the Jews, the royal theme runs as a clear thread through his life and death. Jesus himself redefines the concept of kingship. This is signalled most dramatically by his choice of a donkey on which to make his entry into Jerusalem on the first Palm Sunday. He deliberately opts for an animal associated with humility, humiliation even, rather than a proud charger or stallion more fitting for a king on a triumphal progress. In washing his disciples' feet on the first Maundy Thursday, he further shows that he is, in Graham Kendrick's memorable words, the servant king, displaying meekness as well as majesty. When Pontius Pilate repeatedly asks him whether he is indeed the king of the Jews, he gives the cryptic answer, you have said so. Jesus never repudiates the idea of kingship, but gives it a wholly new meaning of humble servanthood which has been the inspiration for Christian monarchy ever since. The theological paranoia driving conspiracy theory among Christians 
by Jared Stacey. From the very beginning, the church has contended with a conspiracy theory about its central claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Philosopher M.R.X. Dentith says a conspiracy theory can be any interpretation of an event which cites a conspiracy as a chief cause. Of course, it's more complex than this. Conspiracy theories today have moral and political consequences. They also carry social stigma. But at least in this limited way, you can see how Christianity and conspiracy theory have always related to one another. The church's earliest witness to the resurrection emerged alongside a counter-narrative that claimed his disciples stole the body. In other words, a conspiracy theory. Gospel writer Matthew explains how the chief priests paid off the Roman guards who were keeping an eye on the tomb of Jesus with a story. The story seemed legitimate because people trusted the authority of priesthood. This proved to be a potent connection. Some 40 to 70 years later, Matthew tells his readers, So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This dynamic repays careful consideration as conspiracy theories take root in Christian communities today. It's not hard to sympathise with those who are critical about a perceived link between a Christian imagination and a commitment to conspiracism, which, in turn, breeds political extremism. Sociologically, research continues to confirm this link, but I've also heard it expressed like this. If you actually believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the resurrected son of God, some say, then why wouldn't you also believe there's a paedophilia ring operating out of a Washington DC pizza parlour? In this criticism, the resurrection of Jesus is implicated as being just as irrational as the QAnon conspiracy theory. In this sense, Q, the originator of the eponymous conspiracy theory, and Christ seem to hang together in their delusions. Is there anything which can separate them? Edgar Welsh heard enough. He had just spent three days deep in the QAnon rabbit hole watching video after video. Now, he decided, was the time to act. Grabbing his AR-15, he drove to the DC pizza joint Q claimed, and he believed, was a front for a democratic paedophilia ring. But he never found the paedophilia ring. The only thing he found was a four-year prison sentence. Taking the claims of Jesus seriously invites us to consider an empty tomb in place of a pizza parlour. But, unlike Welch, this isn't a place to which we can drive. I think David Bentley Hart is right when he observes there is something positively absurd in balancing the whole edifice of eternal truth on a fleeting temporal episode that occurred over the course of one weekend in Jerusalem. And without the fantasy of a time machine, without the possibility of pure historical reconstruction, we stand looking across this void, wondering what exactly to make of the scandalous possibility of an empty tomb. The church exists in this void. The church, if it is anything, is a sustained witness over time to an event and its meaning. Both of these matter. The church continues to interpret an incredible event. Jewish women showed up that Easter morning expecting to find Jesus' body and didn't. 
but this event, to which the church attests, that of an empty tomb, is nothing without its meaning. The historical record alone can't provoke the crisis which invites us to consider Jesus as anything more than a Jewish itinerant rabbi executed by Rome as an insurrectionist. But the church's witness exists to provoke that crisis. It's the same crisis obscured in Matthew's time, as he reminded his readers that many people still believe the narrative of the authorities. Like the earliest witness to the resurrection, it is faith in the risen Lord that constitutes and determines the church, not merely the fact of an empty tomb. Many want to disrupt conspiracy theory in the church on rational grounds, without realising that the central claim of the church itself can't completely rest on this plot of land. This is why I so appreciated Alistair McGrath's article on this site about the place of the creeds in fueling the Christian imagination. The Christian faith can't be judged solely in rational terms without ceasing to be faith. And so, Christians cannot cede the resurrection of Jesus to the standards of rationality or bare history. But they can admit the criticism of outsiders who note that the Christian imagination can get bound up in an extremism in which conspiracy theories play a significant part. This is a moral and theological problem, but it has a solution. Many conspiracy theories find a home in Christian communities today because of a certain Christian view of the world, not despite it. I call this view theological paranoia. It's not a clinical diagnosis, but a descriptive characterization. It shows how Christians of all theological persuasions can become purveyors of political conspiracy theory. History tells us as much, and theology is bound up in this problem. Whether the Salem witch trials, the early Americas, or communist conspiracy theories of the Cold War, a theological imagination lent these claims a potency which allowed them to persist within Christian community. Perhaps the chief conspiracy of this Christian imagination is Satan's war on the faithful in the world. It gives Satan too much power, but such is the imagination of the theological paranoia. Conspiracy theories become plausible in Christian communities where theological paranoia has been constructed upstream. This happens in a few ways. One way is seeing the conflict between the kingdoms of Christ and Satan underlying every argument, every distressing event. Another way is through uninterrogated institutional commitments, like the carousel of threats to the church. In the US context, for example, white evangelicals, the tradition I grew up in, now make up one of the largest religious demographic segments when analysing belief in QAnon. Q is the self-given title to an anonymous user who posted cryptic messages on an online forum. Q claims, among other things, that there is a paedophilia ring operating at the highest levels of the Democratic Party and the global elites. Soon, according to Q, a great storm will come to wipe away these elites. This is the world of Q. Battle between good and evil with Donald Trump as the hero. These political contests all largely conform to the theological imagination 
that is prominent in white evangelical churches, which we have inherited and innovated, in which we see the church's task not as witness, but as warrior. This is theological paranoia manifest. It is an imagination which forms people into this view of the world and informs the practice of politics. It is a split world characterised by combat between Satan and Christ. Theologically, it is as if Christ were given a tour of hell rather than bursting its gates. In theological paranoia, the resurrection of Jesus Christ functions merely as the ultimate alternative take. This is potent in digital infrastructure, which produces information on a scale with which we have yet to grapple. Instead, we seek certainty through developing alternative perspectives, which keep our world controlled and comfortable. Theological paranoia forms Christians who understand themselves as possessors of truth, rather than humble participants in it. Despite all this, however, I think a richer Christian imagination can dispel and disrupt the theological paranoia which fuels the conspiracy theories in Christian communities. Where would we start this work of dismantling and disvestment? I believe it starts fundamentally with how we think of God's relation to creation, the universe and to us as human beings, and some of us as Christians. Christians occupy the same place in this cosmos as non-Christians. We are not gifted with omniscience. Instead, all are invited into the church, the place and people built up and marked by faith. Here we aren't met with anxiety so much as mystery, with a person, not an index of answers. It is, as Brian Brock says, the only thing the church knows that the world doesn't is who sustains it. This observation isn't meant to recast the church against the world, quite the opposite. It's an invitation to common ground, one which divests Christians of the claim that our faith is gnosis, some sort of secret knowledge which sets us on a higher plane with wider vistas that legitimises our suspicions of clandestine evil and perhaps most significantly our justification for authority in political matters. No, to believe God controls the world is a claim conditioned by hope, not a claim to possession of or special access to knowledge. Let me be clear. Conspiracy does take place in our social and political world. But knowledge of these clandestine events is not the special prerogative of Christians, nor are such conspiracies as truly pervasive as the theories claim, at least not in a way which justifies developing our moral imagination by their claims. The Christian faith is not a secret Christians possess, Faith is not an omniscience that gives the ability to see behind closed doors or justify spurious claims. Rather, the church is a community whose wisdom is a scandal and whose meaning is a mystery. But this mystery is one which envelops the cosmos. This leads Christians to see the world not as paranoid people, a world split between opposing conspiratorial forces known by the names we give them, like sacred or secular, public or private church or world. Rather, we can see the world and the church together 
in the process of being reconciled to God. The possibility and hope for unity admittedly comes from different places for the non-Christian and the Christian, but I see no reason why either should give way to conspiratorial paranoia, which seems to justify all manner of suspicion and accusation. This ought to be, but is often not, especially true among Christians. If the root of conspiracy theory is anxiety over hidden evil, the Christian faith is rooted in joy over God's manifested goodness. Theology can foster conspiracy theories when it allows this anxiety to outweigh its witness to joy. And while conspiracism does breed extremism, made only more potent when it trades on theological authority, I hold out for the possibility that good theology itself can also dismantle the theological paranoia which has so determined the embrace of conspiracy theory by the Christian community. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.